0: Welcome to another edition of the Iowa Cubs Unwritten Rules Podcast. I'm Randy Wayhofer, Vice President and Assistant General Manager, and joined today by John Rogers, one of our account executives, uh, but a longtime broadcaster in minor league baseball and a a guy that I've known a very long time going back to our shared time in the Midwest League. John got his start in Cedar Rapids uh, and was actually there when I got my start in in Burlington. So we're going to take a trip down memory lane, talk about some things behind the scenes uh, at the A-ball level, how it's a little bit different than things uh, at the AAA level here with the Iowa Cubs, but probably more in common uh, than, than we think sometimes too. So John, welcome to uh, the podcast. As we get started, I want to remind everybody to subscribe, like, and, and share, and make sure uh, you follow along for new episodes uh, each week. So uh, John, who would have thought uh, 20-some years later after we met in the broadcast booth in uh, the Midwest League that we be recording a podcast uh, for the Iowa Cubs someday uh, in our career. Uh, I guess some days it feels like just yesterday. And for me, some days it feels like a million years ago. How about for you?
1: Well, Randy, thank you. It's an honor and thrill for me to follow in the footsteps of some of the great people you've had on the podcast. What a wonderful resource for our fans to avail themselves up. And yes, uh, you look back at our time together, and uh, I've always said you're you're a great friend, you're a colleague, you're sort of a boss in, in some terms, which is wonderful. But yeah, things have gone by uh, Quickly, in some ways, and in other ways, you pinch yourself and say, Wow, you know, I've been in this business since 1996. And um, I did want to, I know this is a podcast where we share stories, and you, you struck a chord when you said uh, that things have kind of come full circle with our friendship. And that is how I even got this uh, opportunity with the iCubs, Randy. I was out in Denver, Colorado, visiting my sister and brother in law. And I hadn't been on the uh, professional baseball employment opportunities site because my subscription had run out. And I was at the University of Evansville at the time a few years back, but had this hankering of just seeing what was out there in professional baseball. Lo and behold, my brother-in-law helped me resubscribe to the Professional Baseball Employment Opportunity site. And I went on it, and I couldn't believe that I saw Iowa Cubs account executive as a description. And I told my brother-in-law, I said, I have a pretty good friend, a real good friend who works for the iCubs. And my brother-in-law gave me a great piece of advice. He said, John, call him now. And that's how uh, my... uh, Path came to the I Cubs and have been here about two and a half years, and I know we're going to go a bit further back in our relationship and friendship. But that, when you said Iowa Cubs, I thought, well, I, I'd like to share how I got this opportunity, and uh, and uh, it's been a great, great part of, of my career journey in professional baseball to be here with the I Cubs.
0: Well, we're happy to have you uh, doing a terrific job, and and I think that's a good segue to kind of dive in here. I think one of the common things that I get is, well, how do you get started? Uh, How did you get into this in the first place? And um, I think those are really interesting stories, especially on the broadcasting side, because it's such a competitive business. Uh, uh, People I meet still almost weekly uh, think that that would be a great job to be doing play-by-play in minor league baseball and When I got my job, there was a lot of competition, I know. But how did you end up with the colonels in in the first place?
1: Well, Randy, you make a great point. Everybody has a different path to where they land. And in my case, uh, I didn't have any training in formal broadcasting. And perhaps that, at least in the first several years, uh, surfaced. But uh, I was a history major at a liberal arts school. That you're familiar with, because you, you grew up in the Chicago suburbs, and my school was Knox College in Galesburg, Illinois. Uh, Mr. Gartner, our president, is familiar with Knox, because like his alma mater, it's a small liberal arts school. So my major was history, and my master's was in athletic administration, and I pursued my dream of becoming a Division Three NCAA cross-country and track coach, and uh, had that opportunity at Carleton College, but always like. A lot of women and men had a second itching. Uh, As a little boy, I always thought, I want to be a broadcaster when I grow up. But I pursued my coaching and education dream first and got to the point where I was in my mid-30s and not really a midlife crisis, but more of, I better pursue this if it's ever going to happen because this can tend to be a young man and a young woman's field. So I took a leap of faith. I quit my job at Carleton College, which was good pay, great benefits, wonderful working environment. A lot of my friends thought that was a little bit crazy. But I I decided to go for it. And I started by, in the old days before MP3 players and all the gadgets we have now, I took a cassette recorder and cassette tape to both what was then Royal Stadium, now Kauffman Stadium, and Bush Stadium, and sat up in the upper deck behind home plate where I could have some semblance of what kind of pitch it was. And the only resource back then in the mid-'90s was the sporting news. So I'd buy, I'd bought the sporting news and got as many statistics on the players as I could and broadcast games live into a tape recorder. And took what I thought were the best couple of innings or highlights. And my mom gave me the best piece of advice, Randy, I think I've ever gotten in terms of career. She said, just what you said, Randy, you're trying to enter a tough field. There's a lot of folks that want to be in broadcasting, especially radio broadcasting baseball. She said, you know what I would do, John? I would get in the car and drive to cities that have minor league baseball and knock on the doors and ask for the general manager or the person in charge. I would have your tape in hand, your resume in hand, and just ask if those minor league folks would have a minute to talk to you. So I did just that. I rented a car, I believe it was from Enterprise, and I got a Motel 6 guide. And went around to Class A rookie ball in Class A cities, in different sections of the of this nation of the country. I think I went to four or five segments. I'll never forget starting off in the Pacific Northwest, and my first stop was Bellingham, Washington, and then made my way around the Pioneer League and the Northwest League, and uh, did four different trips, and. Cold calling, which is a, ironically a uh, technique we sometimes use in sales, can be a bit daunting because you don't know if you're going to get a welcome or I don't have time or he's not in or she's not in or a friendly boot out the door. But f- fortunately, the f- folks that were able to sit down with me for a few minutes uh, were very helpful. I think Sam, our president and general manager, knows a Bob beben He's somehow related to Gary Beban of UCLA, who won a Heisman Trophy uh, in the mid-60s, so that's why the name Beban stuck out. And he said, John, you, I'm not sure you ought to be trying to do this. The pay isn't that great. You're going to ask be, to learn how to sell and to help the organization, even if you're the broadcaster, so to speak, uh, sell. Uh, but he was still encouraging. He just was realistic and said it's a bit of a long shot. But after visiting with a number of folks who did have time for a few minutes, uh, a fellow named Jack Rader in Cedar Rapids, one of my last stops on my sojourn or my, uh, my uh, trek or odyssey, uh, Jack took a good half hour and talked to me, and this is in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, Jack Rader, and then the broadcaster, Johnny Doskow of the colonels, came in and said Hello. Well, as luck would have it, Randy, as you know, if you knock on enough doors and you have that feeling that something's good is going to happen to you, that's what I felt. Jack, actually, Johnny Doskow called me about two weeks later, the broadcaster for the Cedar Rapids Colonels, and said, John, I'm leaving for the California League. I got a job in the California League. There's an opening here in Cedar Rapids. I think Jack might have remembered you why don't you call jack so sure enough i called jack Rader, and he was interested enough to bring me up for an interview with three other people and said you know point blank you know we'll pay you thirteen thousand dollars a year you're going to have to sell he told all the candidates that and fortunately uh, jack i got the offer and boy i i was on cloud nine it was one of the most memorable days of my life randy i remember sitting at the kitchen table and looking at my mom and saying wow wow i got a job in baseball and part of my job is broadcasting so that's probably the most long winded answer you've had to a question on this podcast but thank you for letting me (laughs) share that story randy
0: (laughs) well i think that's all the time we have for today no i'm kidding with you john uh, <laughs> I, I think, uh, you know, it's a great story. Uh, and and to know you, it's not shocking to know that that's kind of the way things develop. Uh, it takes a little bit of luck, a lot of perseverance. Um, I'd be curious how many people listening to the podcast know what a cassette tape is or a Motel 6 guide. I think we learned a few things uh, uh, for some of the interns that uh, listen, listen to the podcast on a regular basis. But, uh, you know, my... My journey was not that uh, involved. Uh, I went to the baseball winter meetings at the job fair uh, and and applied for my job in Burlington. There was probably 100 guys with tapes and resumes. I don't remember any young ladies. Uh, There are some in the industry now, fortunately, but I don't remember any in 1998. Um, And on the odd hours, they posted jobs, and on the even hours, they posted interview schedules. And it was just like a big cattle path where we went in a herd and looked to see if your name was on the wall. Kind of like the movie Rudy to see who was on the dress list when you kind of looked uh, down the wall. Uh, And I'm pretty certain I got hired in Burlington without anybody listening to my tape. Uh, because you couldn't listen to 100 tapes of all the different candidates, and they were looking for somebody. Do you think Jack ev- ever actually listened to the tape that you gave him? I think his assistant general manager, Andy Graykowski
1: did, and I was filling some big shoes. You're a good friend of Johnny Doskow. He's been at the AAA level and done some major league uh, pinch hitting for the Oakland A's. So uh, I Jack was adamant, though, Randy, and I'm, I'm fairly sure it might have been the same in Burlington, although you stepped into a more merc- situation but uh jack said your primary job is to sell so he may have played that tape for a few minutes but he wanted somebody who could primarily sell first and then certainly represent the ball club uh as a good broadcaster
0: well that's the most important thing i tell uh anybody who asks who wants to get into the business know what you're getting into know what order your responsibilities are um There's a lot of people who are in the industry who think that their number one job is to broadcast the game, and I don't think their boss agrees with them. And if you don't understand that part, it makes for an unhappy uh, situation when you're on the bus at 3 o'clock in the morning uh, wondering what in the world you got yourself into uh, and and some of those things. But um, once you get started, though, uh, that's when the real fun begins. Uh, <laughs> I know uh, especially when you work at the lower levels and, and when you started when we did in, in an era where things were different um, and we started in ballparks that were nothing like what they are today. Uh, we were both at Cedar Rapids and Burlington when we had the big renovations but what do you remember your first days at the old Veterans Memorial Stadium and where you set up to work and, and, and what it was like working in the old ballpark uh, before before it be, uh, you guys built the new one.
1: That's a great uh, visual you've painted, Randy, as you and I both came into the league when there were still a number of, quote, older ballparks. And Veterans Memorial Stadium was built in 1949, and guys like Rocky Colavito and Ted Simmons, Ron Hunt, uh, played in that ballpark, Jerry Royce. And it was viewed as still one of the nicer minor league facilities. And it was in the mid nineties and late nineties holding its own. But then the building got started with all the new stadiums. But the thing I think I remember most was my first quote office. It was the umpire's room and it was a tiny room. It certainly wouldn't meet today's requirements or standards for space or, uh, it was just a tiny closet is what it was. And it, Jack did the typical thing and put a phone book on my desk. I did have a desk uh, and said, start calling for sales. But I remember, Randy, a couple of things. One, I had to bring in an electric blanket uh, to put over my legs because the uh, the umpire's room was not heated. And then there was a mouse in the umpire's room that it made occasional visits to me and I just, I didn't really think, I'm not saying those uh, two memories to to uh, cast any type of dispersion over the work environment. I knew what I, as you said, I knew what I was getting into. It's just, I've come so far now to where in the new ballpark in Cedar Rapids, I had a wonderful office. I've got a great workspace here at uh, Principal Park where I can see the field anytime I want to by just turning to my left. So, you you know, we all start at some rung on the ladder ordinarily when you start a new job or career you start near the bottom of the ladder which is fine that that's the way it should go you should earn your stripes and and uh learn uh from the ground up but that was those are a couple of memories some of the great players that played in that ballpark and then the so-called office uh umpires room
0: well the raccoons don't usually come out till nighttime uh here see the jeff tilly episode if you want to hear more (laughs) about wildlife Uh, at the ballpark in in the old days, but uh, 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 my first day in Burlington, I got there and uh, I couldn't even get to the press box to see what the booth would be like because they were in the midst of replacing the wooden bleachers with aluminum bleachers and they were only to the part where they had taken the wooden bleachers off. Uh, We're still in the process of putting the aluminum ones on, so I couldn't even walk up the steps of the grandstand to get into the booth to see Uh, without an OSHA violation and my first day in the office I worked from nine to five and they said go home get something to eat change your clothes and then I came back and we bolted aluminum bleachers onto the stands my first day on the job in Burlington so yeah it was uh it, it humbled you quickly uh if you weren't humble already uh in terms of what was going on but uh, we never tell stories about the days that went perfectly correct. Uh, it wouldn't be make for a very good b- podcast at all.
1: Randy, what, you're right. One other quick thing that came to mind is we didn't. They turned off the water like they do here at Principal Park during the winter. Although they do leave restrooms open on the ground on the first floor here. Not at Old Veterans Memorial Stadium in Cedar Rapids. We had the joy of using porta potties when it was sometimes below zero in the ballpark.
0: <laughs> well, you know. At least the pipes didn't burst. That's right. Uh, yeah, that's why we do those things. <laughs> this is Unwritten Rules, an Iowa Cubs podcast. I'm Randy Wayhofer. I'm visiting with John Rogers, telling stories about our uh, coming up in the Midwest League and, and our our beginning days of minor league baseball, uh, and expressing some appreciation for the journey uh, and why we enjoy coming to work um, every day. You know, One of the other things about uh, single-A baseball, especially, is the bus trips. Um, And one of the unique things about Burlington and Cedar Rapids, it's not just about being on the bus nine hours. In in fact, sometimes the long trips were fine. Uh, We did commuter trips, um, which is where you you drove to the stadium, played the game, got back on the bus and drove back and did that four days in a row. And if the schedule makers really were mad at you in a particular year and gave you back-to-back commuter series, those were were really taxing. I would much prefer – an eight-hour ride to Dayton uh, or to Michigan, um, then eight days in a row going to Cedar Rapids and Peoria of 90 minutes on the bus uh, uh, each way. But again, the bus trips were all the fun stuff happened <laughs> and a lot of times too. Uh, let's start with the commuter trips and what uh, – the uniqueness of of the opportunities or the challenges those were. What do you remember about those?
1: Well, Randy, you're absolutely right. They were unique, and the three commuters from Cedar Rapids were to see you in Burlington. I always said, welcome to southeastern Iowa to open my broadcasts from Burlington, and then we would also commute to Clinton, And also to Quad Cities, to Davenport. The Davenport trip was approximately 75 minutes. You kind of felt like you were on a a flight going there because it was all interstate. And then Burlington was about an hour... In 55 minutes and then clinton was uh just under two hours as well the things i remember were that the players wore their uniforms and so did the manager and coaches wear their uniforms on the bus there was no changing or showering after the game and you better not forget anything uh you know because you might have to borrow from the team you're going to see i remember the players bringing their meals on to the uh, buses there was no pregame spread in class a baseball sure your dues might have your clubhouse manager put some bananas and apples and granola bars on the in the on the table in the middle of the clubhouse and then i also remember randy the feeling of sometimes when it was raining this happened several times we would do the commute and through no fault of the general manager we would get there and not play so you just get on the bus and go back and you so that was kind of a waste of four hours but Uh, bus trips were never a waste because of the camaraderie and the humor and the movies and the different uh, personalities that emerged. I remember for some reason, and I don't know if it's still this way in professional baseball, but for some reason there was a, a pecking order on where the manager sat and where the pitching coach sat and where the hitting coach sat and where the trainer sat. And luckily I was in the third row it went uh, pitching coach in the first row on the driver's side, then trainer, and then uh, the broadcaster. So those are just a few of the memories of those commuter trips.
0: <laughs> we, uh, it was. I remember the one particular commuter trip um, going to Quad Cities when the ballpark had flooded. Uh, it was 2001, and so we knew we were going to Blackhawk College uh and to play at four o'clock in the afternoon. And we had just gotten home from Wisconsin and it was a beautiful day when we left. And we had just bussed all night to get back from Appleton. And then we're getting on the bus for a day game. So I just wore a short sleeve shirt and some slacks. And the wind shifted and the temperature dropped and it was like 50 degrees by the middle of the game. The bus I had to borrow a jacket from the bus driver because my teeth were chattering on the broadcast. <laughs> And at Blackhawk College, they didn't have a press box or anything. So we were broadcasting the game out of the concession stand.
1: What Uh, sort of angle did you have? It was
0: was up on a hill behind home plate. It wasn't terrible. (laughs) But I was sitting shoulder to shoulder with the general manager, Dave Zadellis, who uh, was also serving as the PA announcer on a karaoke machine from the concession stand for that game. And one of the great things that has ever happened in my career was – uh, Dave gets on the microphone and says, please rise for the national anthem. Now, there's only two people in attendance for this game. It's the teams, the few of us working, and there were two people in the bleachers. I don't know who they were or why they were there. So everybody stands up. The players are out in front of the dugout. they got chain link dugouts. You know, it's, you know, and uh, he's fumbling around with these CDs on this karaoke machine. And uh, so there's this pause of like 30 seconds. Where everybody's kind of standing there waiting and waiting and waiting. And then all of a sudden we hear, who let the dogs out? He played the wrong CD track. <laughs> and Byron Geddes was a player on our team. And he literally fell down laughing on the line and have one of those great personalities. Uh, uh, they were the Twins affiliate at that time. Justin Morneau hit a home run in that game, I remember. And then during that game, the levee broke and the field got flooded and they ended up playing most of their games in Clinton that year. You know, we thought this was temporary. We play one game at this community college and then move on. Uh, so I was freezing. It was at a community college. Uh, we had Who Let the Dogs Out for the National Anthem that day. And then we got to go back home uh, <laughs> right right afterwards. Uh, so that was- that uh, that was one heck of a commuter trip.
1: Well, goodness, Randy, you bring uh, two things to mind. We never had to play at Blackhawk Community College, but our. Uh, longtime equipment manager, or so-called clubby, Ron Pline, known as Roadie, he just got the biggest kick out of the fact that the Quad City team wouldn't be able to sell beer. He just wanted everybody to know <laughs> because the game wasn't at John Donald Stadium. And then the other th- thing that I recall uh, from another fellow broadcaster, I honestly can't remember which one. Of, oh, it was a PA man in uh, Clinton, Brad Seward, a good friend. Brad went to a game when Clinton played in that Blackhawk facility and said that Kevin Krause, who was the owner of the River Bandits slash swing of the Quad Cities at that time, that Kevin Krauss tried his hand, his hand at PA announcing and did quite well. But I thought with the connection to come and go and the Kraus name here in, uh, in Des Moines that uh, the listeners might enjoy that Kevin Krause took that same role as Dave Zydellis
0: did. <laughs> Yeah, that was a mess. I, you know, um, I, I think that season might have been worse than COVID for the River Bandits, to be quite honest. It was because everybody else was as business as usual, uh, and that that was a real st- struggle for them. There was some light moments that came out of it, but it it was it was tough for them for sure. Um, one of the other things that you and I have in common uh, from our Midwest League days was. Uh, uh, our involvement in the reading program and a shared passion of ours to reach out in the community and, and be part of kids. And I took a lot of cues from you and the things that you guys had started in Cedar Rapids and trying to uh, initiate something like that in Burlington as a way to boost attendance and build the next generation of of fans. Uh, uh, you probably visited more schools than some of the teachers uh, in Cedar Rapids some some years. Uh, talk about your experience with that and, 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 and why it was so important to you.
1: Well, thanks, Randy. It did mean a lot to me, and I went into it uh, with an open mind. The first thing, as we know, is to get a sponsor to help pay and underwrite the costs and the, the rewards that we had. Uh, our sponsor, uh for the last since i've been gone in cedar cedar rapids they've gone now 25 years is toyota financial services unfortunately they're leaving cedar rapids after next year and dispersing their workforce uh into two other parts of the country but we were fortunate to sign them on and it enabled us you're right to visit elementary schools and the model was fairly simple We would try to visit two elementary schools per morning when the team was at home, and we would go in and do a half-hour assembly. The assembly consisted of one of our players dressed in his jersey talking briefly about why reading is or was important to him. And then we would take a children's story. I have still about 15 different books that we used that we would act out the baseball story. Whatever the story was, we would take certain parts of it, the narration, and the baseball player would be the chief protagonist in the story, the chief character. And so what we tried to do is we tried to bring a a story by reading it to life with the player as the star attraction. And that was really fun. That would last, the story would last maybe six to 10 minutes at the most because of elementary school students' attention span. And then the third segment of the assembly, we would show the children what they could win, slash I don't like to probably say win, what they could earn by reading. And they would read 25 minutes at a time. We had that as the goal. And we had a baseball diamond on their reading log. For every 25 minutes they read, their parent or guardian or relative or significant uh, living situation would initial that. It was an honor system, totally honor system, and the goal was to read a 1,000 minutes during the summer, 250 minutes to each base. And at each base, you would come to the ballpark, and if you didn't have means of transportation, we would have the rewards Uh, at the school and the kids uh, would would have something to shoot for during the summer months and then at the end of the season in late August we would have a thousand minute reader recognition program where our players would go out on the outfield grass and all the kids would have a parade on the field before the game and then they would get to go into the outfield and have any items sometimes it was the reading rewards that they had earned signed by our colonel players and We got to the point, Randy, my last year where the demand was so high, I think it was up to 46 elementary schools, I think we started at 15, that when we were out of town... uh, an associate of mine, Sonia, she would take our mascot, Mr. Shucks, to the schools. And as you know, at elementary school age, Randy, the kids get a bigger thrill out of the mascot being there as they do a player. So it grew and grew and uh, to no one's credit except the principals and the kids at the schools because the principals have to buy in to the uh, reason, it's very hard to get a principal to give up a half hour for an assembly unless it's for a pretty good reason. So we were very fortunate to have the principals welcome us with open arms, and as you said, it was a way to not only further the, uh, the reading, would increase the vocabulary of the students, improve their spelling, take them to worlds they'd never been, uh, stimulate their imagination, and then on our side, it would build that future fan base.
0: Uh, we did a lot of similar things with the the school appearances and and stuff. But uh, one of the things I learned pretty quickly was um, the responsibility we had working for the professional baseball team and the doors that it opened in the community. That I would go. I went to the library to the children's section in Burlington, and I said, I'd, "When the team's in town on Friday mornings at ten o'clock, I'd be happy to come down and read some books." You think anybody would show up? And they said, "Yeah, you you'd do that." I said, "Of course," and. I thought about it later. Uh, they never did a background check. They never asked me, you know, what my motivations were. All I had to do was walk in and say that I was with the baseball team. You know, if I walked in and said I sold insurance or worked at a factory, they would have thought I was some sort of creep and probably chased me away quicker than I could have, <laughs> could have run. Um, you know, but just showing up randomly saying, uh, I work for the baseball team, we've got some tickets to give away, and I'd be happy to come read books to kids uh, if you think anybody would listen. And sure enough, they brought kids and there was probably twenty to twenty five kids uh there every Friday morning that the team was in town and it made me realize pretty quickly what a what an awesome responsibility we had uh in the or in, in the community, uh working for our organizations where uh you just didn't have that opportunity to make a difference, uh, and 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 why that was important. And we've got our home run reader days coming up uh at the end of this month, in fact, uh, here at, at Principal Park and um, it's less school-oriented here than it is library-oriented in, in the summertime in a bigger city like Des Moines. And for all the reasons that you just talked about, it'd be impossible to get everywhere in the metro uh, if you started doing school visits. But uh, uh, it's a pretty cool thing uh, and 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 really filling, I think, for me and obviously for you uh, to have been a, a part of that. I'm Randy Wayhofer. He's John Rogers. This is Unwritten Rules, an Iowa Cubs podcast-like uh, Subscribe, share, do all those good things if you enjoy the podcast uh, and and all the stories we tell. And, John, we we can probably do this again. Um, But the last thing I wanted to wrap up with is a shared experience you and I had that relates directly back to the Iowa Cubs too was that, uh, you know, Ryan Sandberg was the manager here in in 2010 in Iowa. Uh, But before he got here, he was in Peoria in the Midwest League where he began. Um, And uh, I was fortunate to be on both ends of that I was still in Burlington when he was managing in Peoria and then was here by the time he got here and got to see a lot of those things firsthand Um, but that first year that a Hall of Famer was in uniform in the dugout uh, that we got to see uh, what do you remember uh, about Ryan Sandberg the manager in the Midwest League and the uh, and the impact that, that that had well the
1: key word there Randy is impact he had a tremendous impact uh, the couple of things I remember when when uh, the Peoria Chiefs would come to Cedar Rapids, and we were an Angels affiliate, the geographic uh, tie never really was made sense. But that's a, another story about what a great organization the Angels were. But when Rhino or Ryan would come to Cedar Rapids, there are a lot of Cub fans all over the country, but especially in Iowa. And so we would have lines, Randy, and I'm not exaggerating, of 75 to 100 people before the game right down. As minor league baseball, we know it, one of the neat things about it is it, the small scale of the grandstand and the proximity that fans can have to the field. Ryan would sign forever before the game, as much as he could, and then after the game. And then we'd go to Peoria where he was there for 70 home dates as the Chiefs manager, when we would go there, the same phenomenon of lines and lines of people with Sandberg memorabilia. He's one of the most popular Cubs of all time, right up there with Billy Williams and Ernie Banks and uh, and uh, Fergie Jenkins and some of the modern-day players. But what struck me, uh, two specific things. Jack Rader, our general manager, uh, who, like Sam Burnaby, laid the foundation for what the Cedar Rapids Colonels became, said to me, John, I've been in this league a long time, and Ryan Sandberg is the best thing and most wonderful phenomenon that's ever happened to the Midwest League. And Jack had seen a lot of good things in the Midwest League. And the second thing is, and you get this some, Randy, a well-meaning sponsor's son uh, called me, the sponsor called me and said, John, is there any chance my son Chris could get up close with Ryan Sandberg, and I said, well, Kevin, I can't promise anything, but bring him down to the ballpark. He was in his early mid-20s, I think, and so I took a bit of a chance. I brought Chris into the third base uh, uh, dugout, the visitor's dugout, and there was Rhino in left field, I believe with a trainer or maybe another coach. Rhino was the manager. He had a fungo bat, and I just had the gall or gumption to walk out on the field and Ryan's back was to me and I said Ryan and he turned around and I said I'm John Rogers the broadcaster for the Cedar Rapids Colonels this is Chris McCarville Um, you're his favorite player of all time would you have a moment to stand with him for a picture and an autograph and Rhino said I would be happy to it'd be my pleasure and I in essence could have been interrupting uh, a skull session a brainstorming whatever those two guys were doing and you always remember how someone treats you in life and i will always remember ryan sandberg taking countless minutes and hours to sign autographs and not chasing me off the field uh in a way of a prima donna or i'm a hall of famer but just making me and the sponsor's son feel so at ease and so welcome to come out on that field
0: well i and traveling with him in 2010 here and kind of refereeing a lot of those things on the road. Uh, he and Mike Sweeney, who did a rehab assignment in, in Burlington uh, from the Royals after he'd been on the all-star team are the two best people that I've ever been in touch with personally, who understand why people want some of their time and humbly give it to them without puffing out their chest and being, it was you know so important about it um, and it's a really hard thing to do for a human being is to as- accept the fact that people want that from you and then to give that to them willingly um, I-, I thought was really really neat my favorite story with, with Ryan in the Midwest League uh, there was a game in Burlington and I was official scoring that game as well as broadcasting and there was a play uh, during the game where one of the Burlington batters had a a chopper to the right side, and the second baseman went way far to his left and got it and threw off balance to first, and the throw was a little bit wide, and it was going to be a bang-bang play, and, and I gave the Burlington player a hit on that play. And I think we got a couple of runs that inning. So after the game, I take the box score into the clubhouse, into the coach's office, and Sandberg wasn't at his desk. He was out in the locker in the shower, or wherever he was. And the pitching coach is just furious with me because, of course, as you know, anything that's a borderline hit or an error that leads to runs and earn runs and messes with his staff ERA and his pitcher's ERA, every pitching coach in America is furious with the official score. And he starts reading me the riot act about how I don't know anything about baseball and this, that, and the other. That's got to be an error. That's terrible. Using every bit of colorful language that you could come up with. And after listening to this for about two minutes, here comes Samberg walking into the room and he hears the shouting and the commotion and he goes, What's going on here? And so now his pitching coach thinks he's got me. He goes, This is the official score. And he he and you know, they play in the fourth inning. And he described it. And Samberg goes, Yeah, I don't think I make that play.
1: Now, so, did the pitching coach Randy so, sheepishly retire so, to his locker? So
0: here's the Hall of Fame Gold Glove second baseman who agrees with me, <laughs> yeah. and not his pitching coach, that that's a hard play for a second yeah. baseman to make. I said, "Thanks, i know you guys need anything else?" <laughs> <laughs> no. And I got the heck out of there. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, but I think again that speaks to the baseball person that he was. It was it was never about you know being right or wrong it was what was the fair play and that's kind of the way he he handled everything that that he was here but that was my uh that was my ryan sandberg story in the midwest league of his his one trip to burlington
1: randy that's a great story one you'd never shared with me and uh yeah I, i'm glad we left time uh on the podcast to talk a little bit about ryan sandberg
0: well, we'll do this again because uh, we only got through about half, if not less, of our list of possible topics we thought uh, that we could cover. And you know, maybe me, you, and Alex all together can tell some stories one time about uh, the players we've encountered and, and some of the things, uh, uh, especially as we get into the offseason, we'll have lots of opportunities for, for more time on the podcast. But uh, thanks, John, for, for sharing with us, and we'll do this again.
1: Randy, thanks a million. Like I say, it's an honor and a thrill. And Thank you for making it easy for me, and uh, this is a wonderful venture of the I-Cubs, and I appreciate being a part of it.
0: He's John Rogers, currently an account executive here with the Iowa Cubs, former broadcaster with the Cedar Rapids Colonels. I'm Randy Wayhofer. Vice President and Assistant GM with, with Iowa, and we're so glad that you joined us for this installment of Unwritten Rules and Iowa Cubs podcast. We'll have another episode next week. In the meantime, uh, subscribe, like, share, uh, go back and listen to the episodes that you may have missed. We've covered a lot of fun stuff, and as you may have figured out, this isn't about who are the best players today or uh, who, who are the new top prospects. Uh, the human side of baseball is the fun part. Uh, of the game and and pulling back the curtain to see what really happens in these ballparks because it is a lot of fun most days uh, for sure until next time thanks for listening